0: In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall,
2: America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply.
1: Joe uh, said something to me earlier that really awakened uh, a desire. Uh, what? Uh when I pulled out to pick him up to get breakfast he's like oh my hunky muscle car boyfriend is here so like, yeah that's what I want to be Just I want to exude that hunky muscle car boyfriend energy Yeah, I know? think you're close to that yeah. I think we should probably like I've been hitting the gym yeah I gotta drop like 15 pounds I think yeah. but like I think I can get there yeah what do I want to be what do, what do I want to be we'll find out I don't out. think we have time to yeah. dig into that right now <laughs> hey guys welcome back to past gas The Donut Media Automotive History Podcast. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Nolan Sykes. Across from me is James Pumphrey. Oh, baby. (laughs) We're going to go. (laughs) <laughs> oh, back. the big bopper's over here. <laughs> Hello, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to, my, to my left is Mr. Joe Weber. Hello, Joe. Wink, wink.
2: Oh, <laughs> oh no. yeah, dude. That's, catchphrase. Yeah, that's a catchphrase. do it
3: twice, it's a bit. Yeah. It's coming back.
2: Can't yeah. wait till we put those shirts out. Let us know in the reviews <laughs> below. Uh, would you buy a wink, wink <laughs> Joe Weber <laughs> donut pass gas shirt? Yo, show up. Uh, in
3: the comments, wink, <laughs> wink, army. Uh. <laughs> Hashtag,
2: wink, wink, army.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we are continuing our ongoing series on Mr. Bruce McLaren. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Hey, guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So, thank you. All right, now for the show. When we last met up with Bruce, the young Kiwi had left his home country of New Zealand and made his home in England, working for legendary car maker John Cooper in his factory. Bruce's racing career abroad had a bit of a bumpy start, but after two wins at the Medina of Formula One, not the Mecca, because I would say the Mecca is Monaco, Mm -hmm. uh, Silverstone, Bruce was finding his confidence behind the wheel. Is Medina like? Mecca and Medina, right? cities I That's the first time I've ever... Really? Yeah. Hold on. It's a city in western Saudi Arabia. Cool, man. Anyway. <laughs> it's the 1958 German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring. Uh, Bruce finishes fifth overall and first in the Formula 2 class. He was hanging in with the Formula 1 cards. Think about how many Formula 1 cards you have to stay ahead of to be fifth overall, but still win the Form- Formula 2 class. About 21. Sounds about right. I'm not gonna contest That's that. That's pretty crazy to just yeah.
3: like bump up a class.
1: <laughs> like Yeah. That, I mean, that just shows yeah. the prowess of of for Bruce. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So after the uh the fifty eight German Grand Prix, uh him and his mechanic Colin set off for England a race in Brands Hatch, which was the very next day, which I thought was insane. What? These guys are always <laughs> driving to races. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh they managed And
2: back then like now. Uh, racing is very um, posh, mm-hmm. I, I guess. Like, these guys are treated as athletes. Like I mentioned in the last episode, there's just so much data on them. They're checking their pulse and their heart rates. Yeah. You know, they probably, like, decompress the dudes after every <laughs> race and, like, check all their muscles and stuff. Like, back then, it was a pretty, like, rag-tag, almost like the circus is coming to town. Yeah, and
1: it's... There was no thought for scheduling, (laughs) yeah, properly. (laughs) It's like, hey, we got a Formula One race in Germany. How about we go to Britain the next day? And they're just like, hey, man, if there's a race, I'm there. Yeah, drive. (laughs) I don't know. I guess two races back to back in a day. I mean, it's a (laughs) holiday weekend. We might as well take advantage. (laughs) Might as well make a a vacation out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get some Carl's Jr. on the way. (laughs) Yeah. So they managed to complete the 380 mile journey from the Nurburgring. Two brands hatch overnight. And then <laughs> these guys were cooking. Yeah. Bruce Hop in the car and finished third at that race. And by the way, he wasn't the only one who made it to that race. It was like pretty much the entire field in Germany.
2: It was like a huge caravan. Yeah.
1: Of big old haulers and like probably station wagons and stuff. Just rip it
2: yeah. down the Autobahn. <laughs> and then they get on the M1. Ooh, you know?
1: Yeah. That's a local reference I yeah. understand.
3: Yeah. To England. <laughs> everyone in the midwest right now is like yeah 380 miles that's fine like, that's pretty yeah. good yeah, that's, that's my true. commute yeah
1: <laughs> how far was la to albuquerque for hilo it was like 800 miles so what was that like so not that impressive 16 then. hours
2: or something We <laughs> <laughs> only did it in 25 hours oh, wow. god that was yeah that our, was the our worst. cars broke a lot oh man dude yeah it was bad. Casey blames my heart attack on that show. <laughs> She's like like we just shot season 2 of High Low. The Zs are awesome now. Yeah. Um but like she was like very concerned while we were shooting it because the last season was just so hard on us. Um this one was way easier, but yeah. last time we were working like 18-hour days
1: for like a month in a row and I had a heart attack like 2 weeks <laughs> after. It was weird, man, like it that show like, we got in the rhythm of that, like you said, 18-hour days. It was like, okay, you wake up, drive to the garage, work all day, and then come home, sleep for a little bit, and then just do that. And then after, like, two weeks, it was just like just a weird kind of fugue mind state. Yeah. I Like, I forgot to pay bills. Yeah, it's like <laughs> weird
2: dream state. And, like, it's not like we were just going and working. It was, like, the highest pressure, just everything was going wrong, so much stress constantly, yeah. and just, like, I think all of us cried. I
1: cried. Did yeah. you cry?
2: Um, you cried. No. You cried.
1: I was just angry. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was cry. just like writing metal lyrics in his little <laughs> notebook. <laughs> uh, by Bruce's 21st birthday, he had competed in 11 European races and he had finished every one of them. Bruce believes it was because of the shared meticulous nature between he and his mechanic Colin. They always try to be first to tech inspections, first ones to practice, and always have the car looking in tip-top shape. Uh, in his book, Bruce maintains that, quote, Three things are important and go a long way towards winning races. Uh, I think it's time for just a little reminder of what racing was like back then. The reputation that open-wheel racing has today is of precision and otherworldly engineering and safety. But that's not how the sport was perceived in the late 50s. No? Let, no. Let's just listen to how Bruce describes a race in Avis, Germany. To my mind, it was ridiculous to have a race on the
2: Avis circuit. It proved nothing, and it was dangerous, consisting of two two two-and-a-half-mile straights connected at one end by a hairpin, and at the other, a very steeply banked corner. And when I say steeply banked, boy, I mean steeply
1: banked. It was around 40 degrees? It sounds... (laughs) More like something you'd see in Running Man 2, full throttle, than a sanctioned race. <laughs> like, just think about it. That's the most ridiculous racetrack I've ever heard.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like a big old oval. With a... That's crazy. But not
1: even an oval. It was like yeah. hairpins at both
2: sides. Well, what? no. It was a big bank at one side so oh, they so could like maintain a... speed. Yeah. So it's like a freaking slingshotting yeah. around the moon and to you go to, to Mars. And then
1: you have to go through a hairpin yeah, at you're
2: the
3: other like, end.
1: Shoo! Yeah. It's, like a...
3: it's like the shape of a carabiner. Basically,
2: yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. So, like, you could just maintain so two and a half miles. So, you could maintain just, like, top-out speed yeah. for, I'm guessing, like, close to six miles. They said,
1: yeah, they said, or uh, in the book, he says, I think the average speed for that race was, like, 150 miles an hour. That's wow. absurd. Yeah.
2: R- remember, this is in the late 50s. Yep. Cars didn't have freaking seatbelts back then, I don't think. No. No, not he, at all.
1: He goes on to describe the racing at the Avis Circuit. The
2: race itself was like a group of boys in Dodgeham cars with wheels touching, noses and tails bumping, jostling for the lead. But we were doing it at 150 miles per hour.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dodgem cars are just bumper cars.
2: Oh. Dodgeham. Dodgeham. Hey, jump in the dojum cars? <laughs> hey, you gonna go get a lolly? I'm gonna get some cotton candy. I'll meet you at the dojum cars. Ooh, that sounds fun. I'm gonna try and win the stuffed bear for me mum. <laughs> There's a
3: part of the documentary where he describes these like really steep banks, and he's going so fast that like it's hard to keep his hands on the bottom of the steering wheel. Like
1: It's pulling his hands oh, down. Wow. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That is insane. Bruce's apprehensions about Avis were justified. As a crash had sent one of the competitors fly, flying thirty feet in the air, and ejecting the driver, the car went thirty feet in the yeah, air. The car they went thirty spit feet. The guy out. Yeah, the rest of the pack was able to dodge the car and continued their breakneck chase down the street. So
2: they back then they didn't even have
1: like, uh, what's it like yellow caution flags. rounds? Yeah, yeah, they didn't have yellow flags. Yeah. Doesn't sound like it. That's as long shirt. as the car, the car <laughs> I mean, if the car's not in the way, and it's like, hey man, keep it going.
2: Crazy uh, man.
1: Crashes like these were not uncommon in racing back then. Bruce's car threw a connecting rod that race, by the way, and the ejected driver also survived his crash with a broken leg and four broken vertebrae. I feel like if I were a race car driver back then, I'd be like, "Okay, I'm down to race."
2: Oh, thank God, I blew a rod. Yeah, certainly. Sir- like, I mean, <laughs> you know, like, okay, I'm not gonna win, but at least I'm not dying today.
1: There does seem to be, at least a little bit of that kind of feeling throughout the book because he when he describes times that his car broke breaks down he's also he's very sad obviously but also he then like in the same breath describes some horrific crash mm-hmm. yeah. where someone just gets thrown from their car his You're good
3: like, friend got killed in a race and then he just like raced the next day like they didn't they didn't even think about it it was just like yeah of course i'm going to race
1: guys used to die all the time yeah did you, do you did you guys watch the um the Daytona 500 yeah. a few weeks ago? It's crazy. Ryan's crazy crash. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a rerun because I didn't know that the, the race had been like postponed. So I was like, oh, I didn't hear anything about a driver getting hurt or anything, so this is probably fine. And then it was... It was a live race. Yeah, and, uh, luckily he was okay. He, he is okay, and he, he really walked swimming. out of the hospital another yeah. a couple of days it was later. Crazy though. But but also, I, mean, I, I was watching it at a bar in the Tascadero. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's what you do—is watch NASCAR in bars. Uh But like, people were like cheering for these crashes because, like, at the end of that race, there's like it was like five crashes or something like that. And every time the. So it's yeah. like, dude, like people are probably. Yeah, there's gonna, a guy in there, yeah. Dick. Especially with Ryan's, because like Ryan Newman's car got like thrown in the air and smashed. Like yeah. he-, he hit the yeah. wall head on. Yeah, like, very then,
2: similar to how Earnhardt. Yeah, did the and wall. then the
1: car flew, and then when he was on the roof, he got hit by another car. It's like he very well could have died, and these idiots are freaking yeah. cheering. Anyway, I hate. that. Later
2: guy. that year, Jim Russell asked Bruce if he would like to co-drive with him at Le Mans, my favorite race and the coolest thing in all of sports. Well, what do you think he said? I don't know, James. Uh, He said yes! Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Phew. Jim had a lot in common with Bruce. For a race car driver, Russell had a surprising working class background. He was born at his parents' fish and chip shop in Norfolk, England. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah, and his first job was, surprisingly, selling ice cream. Not fish and chips. During World War II, he was a flight sergeant in the Royal Air Force and opened his own shop after the war. In a world dominated By rich guys, Bruce and Jim Russell were a good match for each other because they weren't rich guys, but they were good. Good enough to compete with them rich guys. It's like us, baby. Came from nothing. Came from the bottom. Now we're here. No new friends. (laughs) Russell's car of choice for the race was the Cooper Monaco, a car I would say looks like a Shelby Cobra with with Porsche 356 dimensions.
1: Pretty strange looking.
3: Looks like a Jag.
1: Yeah, it's a very strange looking car.
2: Unfortunately for Bruce, the car's performance matched its weird looks at Le Mans. The gearbox started having issues, and soon, second gear was no longer an option. When Russell hopped in the car, he could only drive with one hand as he was keeping the car in gear with the other. It kept popping out. (laughs) Things only got worse for the team when Jim spun out and crashed because of some spilled oil. The Cooper caught fire, and Russell was badly burned. He did survive, though. Thank God. Despite the bad luck in France, it wouldn't be the last time that Bruce McLaren
1: raced at Le Mans. Yeah, yes. remember later on, if you remember from our Ford versus Ferrari series, uh, uh, Bruce. We
2: have a Ford versus Ferrari series yeah. on this show.
1: He um he would end up helping Ford with their GT40 program. hmm Um, it was very instrumental there. Who played him in the movie? I don't remember. Anyway. <laughs> Little fun fact about Jim, he would go on to start a racing school that produced some of the best drivers in racing history. F1 and Indy 500 legend Emerson Fittipaldi, Canadian legend Jacques Villeneuve, <laughs> Villeneuve, Jacques Villeneuve, as they say. That's not how you pronounce Villeneuve. that. Villeneuve, Jacques Villeneuve, Jacques Villeneuve, and Fifth Gear host Tiff Nadell are all Jim Russell racing alumni. You guys ever watch Fifth Gear? No. I did. It's pretty good.
2: Yeah, it's like a poppier
1: Top Gear. Yeah, like when I was a kid, I was like a diehard Top Gear fan, Mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, Fifth Gear sucks, blah, blah, blah. But then now I've like watched it again, I'm like, oh, it's like good. And I actually really like Tiffany Dell.
2: Yeah, it's like, it's a little bit of a, I like the group dynamic more. I think that's what we're starting to go for at Donut, like a a big. Like,
1: just like a bigger cast. Yeah, I like that. And then
2: um, it's (laughs) on a level, it's sort of like Top Gear meets Entertainment Tonight. I think Huh? it's just a little poppier. Yeah. It's okay. a little broader.
1: I get it. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it
0: easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done. Well, I absolutely love this because you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. well,
1: It was at a race in Portugal that Bruce saw a friend have a very near brush with death. Uh, Jack Brabham, if you remember from the last episode. The Australian, the Australian. The heartthrob. That's right. Yeah, super hot guy who just, just drifted every corner. <laughs> <laughs> is and he hot? Let's check if Jack Probably, Brabham was dude, hot.
2: Is Jack Brabham hot? Google it. He's like rugged looking. He's rugged. Yeah. Do you think he gives off a muscle car boyfriend vibe? Nah. No. No? Nah. No. Well. He's strictly exotics. Yeah. He's like, he. I he, mean, he's, he's still like, he's, he's still hanging out in the yeah. high school he looks parking like lot. Malcolm. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> looks a little bit like Malcolm. Yeah, um, I think if you want to get this muscle car boyfriend vibe, you got to start dressing like Tony Angelo. Maybe.
1: Okay. I mean, oh, just like every other. So dress yeah. like I'm on hot rod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs>
2: Tony Angelo gives off the muscle car vibe. We need to get vibe. you some like oh.
3: ripped. Uh, ripped jeans, but
2: ripped from the store, or like some <laughs> sleeve tattoos. Yeah, you need some sleeves and some boots.
1: I I have boots. Oh damn, yeah. that's a good muscle car boyfriend vibe. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. <laughs> you got shoes. I'm gonna go to Buck Mason. No, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to Mac Weldon. I'm gonna go to Mac Weldon <laughs> and get some sweats to really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So sorry, uh, Brabham. Uh, he was cut off by a local driver named Cabral. Which sent Brabham off the track. At a I a am Cabral. <laughs> it does sound like a fighting character. Yeah. <laughs> What's Cabral's finishing move? Uh,
2: cutting you Side off. Sideswipe. Yeah. He's oh
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. So Cabral's sideswipe sent Brabham off the track at one hundred twenty miles per and into a power line post. Oh, yeah. Uh Jack was thrown from his Cooper race car and directly into the path of the Kansas City Flash, a guy named Maston Gregory. Gregory swerved his car around Brabham and across some power lines and had the had the presence of mind to steer his his Whoa. race car with his fingertips so he wouldn't be electrocuted by the power lines. Was
3: he wearing, like, rubber
2: fingertips?
3: Like, why would it... <laughs> well, <laughs> still... just No,
2: so he could pull it off and it wouldn't, like, yeah. lock. Oh, okay. Because when you're getting electrocuted, you can't let go.
1: That makes sense. Uh, Jack survived the crash with just some bruises and drove up Brand's hatch the next weekend. My
2: God,
3: these guys. <laughs> it's crazy. Can you imagine having like the wherewithal to like in a split second
1: swerve and then like put your fingertips yeah, on Like the time must have slowed down so much because you're like, oh Jack Brabham flying yeah. onto the road in front of me, must maneuver car. That's something oh, like the real flash would do. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna drive over some power lines. Are they gonna be live or not? I don't know. Neep. <laughs> little fingertips. <laughs> it's uh, insane. And what is also crazy is at
2: this point, Bruce is only 22 years old. And in 1959, he was chosen to drive for Cooper in the U.S. Grand Prix.
1: What were you doing at 22 years old, James? 22 years old, uh, taking improv classes. And not, not racing at U.S. Grand Prix? No, I wasn't racing in the U.S. Grand Prix, okay. no. No, 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 no. Joe, what mm-hmm. were you doing?
3: I had just moved to L.A., and I was working... Uh, for months without being paid for Gurney Productions. I'm going to call you out. Gurney Productions uh, didn't pay me for three months. And that's why I almost had to move back home. Damn, okay.
2: I'm glad that you didn't have to move back hmm. home. I used to work for American Idol. That's what I was doing at 22. Did you meet Clay Aiken?
1: I did. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. I met all of them. <laughs> all of them. All. Clay all. Aiken. Clay Aiken. Uh, stuttered. I did yeah. met
2: Ruben I was on the season That um That gray haired guy won Oh Taylor
1: Taylor uh, uh, I
3: remember He was like a country
1: dude Yeah Yeah He's yeah. A silver fox He's yeah. a real piece of, <laughs> of <laughs> shit oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
2: He's not a nice guy
1: He's like a ninja turtle
2: Yeah He is real
1: he's But real. he's not nice He's a hero But he's not nice <laughs>
2: The 1959 U.S. Grand Prix would take place at Sebring Raceway, an exceedingly flat track built on top of a former B-17 bomber
1: base. Really continuing this theme of airfields turned into racetracks.
2: After the war had ended, developer Alec Ullman visited the base and thought that the collection of runways and taxi lanes would make a great racetrack. He envisioned the American equivalent of the 24 Hours at Le Mans. In 1952, Sebring held its first 12-hour endurance event, a race that has since gained a reputation as one of the toughest in the world. But Bruce would not be running in an endurance event.
1: Yeah, uh, Sebring is a very rough racetrack. It Mm -hmm. is very tough on race cars. It breaks them down. Even though it's only a 12-hour event, it's uh, very hard to finish.
3: Even though it's only 12 hours of
1: straight racing,
3: flat out. (laughs) Have you been to Sebring, James?
1: Uh no. Okay, I thought have I think we've done something there. Jesse's for sure, Jesse's been. been yeah. yeah.
2: The the 59 USGP would be the first time that Formula U uh, cars would race in the States. <laughs> One local racer believed his midget sprint car could hang with the F1 guys.
1: <laughs> Just so I bet I could do so that. So
2: wrong. Yeah. After some car trouble in qualifying, Bruce started the race in the fourth row back. Not the best place to be in, but not the worst. Wait, I yeah. want to know more about this midget sprint all right, car. So guy. like
1: they're like midget cars are they're you know, sprint cars meant for ovals. They're really small. Yeah. Uh they do have high horsepower, but just the, the hope that he could hang with Formula One cars is just like so funny. Like yeah. it, it Why did they let him in? They didn't he was just chilling. He was hanging out, he was like, Hey man, I know y'all from England, but I bet I could but I could hang with my midget car. <laughs> did they let him? No. <laughs> well, all
2: right. <laughs> cool story. <laughs> it's just a fun detail <laughs> of a
1: of a Florida yo- uh, Florida Florida, Florida, Florida local, not a yokel Joe, a local. Uh, you just did that to so, me. I don't
3: know. I mean, yeah,
2: it is the first time that F one cars were racing in the states. So like he was like, "Yeah, man, you got fast cars. We got fast cars over here too, man." Yeah. And it's like, "Oh, them's our fast cars. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet a crocodile's uncle." <laughs> Alligators, not crocodiles Sorry I I used to live in Florida Cool. Anyway (laughs) Uh, When the green flag dropped Bruce says he made his best ever start That's a quote Catching the number two starter Mr. Sterling Moss by the first corner Bruce held on to his second place position Following close behind his teammate Jack Brabham It was easy for these two guys to hold on to the lead It was as if Brabham's mentorship over the young McLaren gave their cars extra herspers. The USGP was a championship deciding race. Before the race began, Brabham was leading the championship with Moss close behind. Unfortunately for Moss, his car broke down, taking him out of the race. Brabham would take the championship with ease with two laps to go, Jack Brabham slowed down to let Bruce pass. Another lap passed, and Bruce McLaren won his first Formula One race. That's so nice. That's so cool. It's like a, hey, kid, why don't you take this one? Yeah, that's awesome. Jack Brabham took the title, and Cooper took the manufacturer's trophy. This was the beginning of McLaren's lasting legacy in F1. The next season, 1960, Bruce
1: would finish second behind Jack years went by with Bruce seemingly racing all the time. Like I said, they're doing a lot of that caravanning, just going to tracks all over the world. Uh, from 1960 to 1963, his reputation as one of the world's finest drivers grew, driving all over the world in everything from Formula 1 cars to driving for Aston Martin's factory team. But in 1963, everything was about to change. How
3: does everything like how did things work back then with like no internet? Like how do they know? <laughs>
2: do Phone they... calls? Like you'd stop on the side of the road at a gas station, like use a payphone. Do you and you then, like, yeah, call... man, I'm outside Tulsa, but I can be in, <laughs> I can be in Scotland next weekend. <laughs> hey Jack, we're going to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the
1: montage, dude. We yeah. really need to make a movie about this time. Uh, I think yeah. it'd
3: be, I think it'd be better than Ford v Ferrari.
1: But I don't think we should like base it on any real guy. No, it should yeah. be like a, a backmarker. It's called backmarker. Yeah. And like, it's uh, about these dudes that just want to race.
2: But like, someone does play Bruce McLaren. Yeah. yeah. And someone does it play has, Sterling Moss. It's,
1: it's like more of a collage <laughs> of, of a time where we don't have to yeah. base it on what's
3: real, that? It's real like real the things. Dewey Cox story where uh, like Freddy, uh, Frankie Munez comes up and he's like, Hey, it's me, Buddy Holly.
2: Like, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we're <are> the <laughs> That would actually be pretty good. Yeah, dude, we should do that.
1: Don't take that idea. Don't, don't take, take it. Copyright.
2: Copyright. <laughs> dibs dibs
1: you guys don't even know how to use final draft anyway <laughs> neither do i
2: <laughs> bruce was running in the german grand prix at the nurberg ring he was chasing down john surtees in his red ferrari and jim clark in his green lotus all of a sudden bruce woke up in the hospital he figured he'd gone off track but bruce could not remember where or how he recalled how sterling moss told him after a crash at goodwood if you told me i'd been hit by a bus i'd have believed you Bruce had been skeptical of memory loss.
1: <laughs> he says that he's like, I didn't really believe that that oh, yeah. could happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but now in his hospital bed, he understood. It seems my mind had conveniently whitewashed anything it would be better not to remember. That's pretty great. That's a good quote. A
1: lot of good quotes from uh, Bruce. McClary. Dude, he's, he's such a, an him. eloquent guy.
3: If I remember correctly from the documentary, right before Nurburgring, he like called his. Girlfriend or wife at the time, and was like, "This track shouldn't exist." Like, yeah. there's so many dangerous curves.
2: Yeah, and back then, like it's still pretty dangerous, but back
1: then, it was really, really dangerous. Yeah, Bruce's legs were battered, and he had assumed that he was, <clears throat> sorry, Bruce, well, like a corn dog. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> Bruce's legs were battered like a corn dog, Joe, and uh, he assumed that he was thrown from his Cooper's cockpit. His right leg was in a plaster cast, not unlike uh, when he was. Uh...
2: Oh, boy. Damn, dude. Things come full circle. I bet that was triggering for him.
1: Yeah. Oh, probably, yeah. He remembered seeing Surtees and Clark about a quarter mile ahead, but he did not remember hearing the right rear wishbone break, causing the car to spin out at 100 miles per hour. But he did remember that there was a race in two weeks. Oh, my God, And that he wanted to drive. No. If going back out on track after he almost died sounds crazy, well, Bruce, he had an answer for you. Quote, it's essential that you go straight out again and have a go.
2: If you're ever going to look yourself in the eye again. What do you I think mean, that mentality?
1: You could
3: take a month off and yeah. still look yourself in the
1: eye. <laughs> totally. While McLaren had proven himself as poised and focused behind the wheel, the crash at the ring did cause him to start, more, start thinking more critically about the forces working on all the components in his car. He was afraid of more breakages. He started thinking about building his own cars. I think that's a good idea. I think he should do that. Did he ever
2: do it? Let's continue. (laughs) (laughs) At first, Bruce planned to modify Cooper F1 cars to run down in Australia and New Zealand. I guess he missed his home. Since he already had such a great, long-lasting relationship with the Cooper company, he thought that this would go off without a hitch. But Charles Cooper, John Cooper's son, had some
1: reservations. Mm, Classic son. (laughs) Yeah, he he <laughs> classic son mentality. Yeah,
2: I they, this is my this is my dad's company anymore. It's mine. He didn't like the idea of a young Kiwi modifying John Cooper race cars to be very different from what Cooper intended and then racing under the Cooper's name. It's
1: somewhat reasonable. Also, they were kind of worried about uh um uh liability. They're also very worried about liability mm-hmm. cuz Something had gone wrong with one of those cars that technically would be Cooper's fault and they're afraid of getting sued. Yeah,
2: that's yeah. I understand, yeah. but
3: it's not completely different from what he intended. He wanted to win races,
1: yeah, but it wouldn't te- like uh, Bruce's idea was to kind of change it so radically that it wasn't really a Cooper anymore, right? Yeah. It's like
2: if someone was like, Hey, I want to take all your donut videos, um, but I'm gonna change them, yeah. but I'm still gonna call them Donut, yeah, I'd be like, Yeah, you're right, not,
1: yeah, no, you're not,
2: no, you're not, you're not dude. I'm gonna. F- Karate chop you! <laughs> uh, because of all these reasons, it looked like Bruce would not be racing Coopers in Australia. No matter, he decided he would just
1: race his own cars yeah. in Australia. Bruce teamed up with Timmy and Teddy Meyer.
2: Hi, uh, I'm Timmy. This my brother Teddy.
1: Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Timmy was a racer, and uh, Teddy was his brother slash manager. They're both from America, uh, along with Bruce's longtime assistant Owen Young. Four men formed a team. It was called Bruce McLaren Motor Racing, or BMMR for short. Their first project was developing a new 2.5-liter engine. Bruce planned for a shorter piston stroke, ooh, and which would uh, improve responsiveness, throttle responsiveness, and how fast the engine can turn. So, like, shorter stroke, that's higher revs. I think short stroke is a good name for, like, a
3: little grease monkey kid. A mm-hmm. hey, short stroke, bring me, bring me that <laughs> wrench.
1: My name's Short Stroke for some reason. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so the rules under which the team would be racing down under uh, dictated the races would be shorter, which meant smaller fuel tanks uh, had to be fitted on the car, thus making a skinnier car. Bruce modified the Coopers with stronger body panels with under-seat fuel tanks and (laughs) some new suspension. Sounds like foreshadowing (laughs) uh this the cars were painted with the racing colors of new zealand british green with a silver stripe
3: i just want to thank you guys for not doing the side talk this like the side mouth thing i've
1: been very tempted but listening back to the delorean episodes i i see why you didn't like it yeah i don't think it worked (laughs) no
2: we'll be right back with more of this story but first a word from our sponsors
1: So, racing artist Michael Turner topped off the car with a custom emblem for the McLaren team, a Kiwi on a checkered flag with a race car silhouette on a shield. So, Sick. this yeah. is <laughs> a cool
3: part. They they took this engineer, uh, what's his name? I don't know. But he, he had this like material that they didn't even know about. He had just come from making the Concorde well, plane. What? Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like an engineer, part of the design team for that. And, he stole a bunch of stuff? Well, he like he let them know about this new material that was like crazy metal. I don't know what it was, but they used it in the construction of the body of this car. That's
1: nuts. And yeah. here's the logo. I think that's very cool. It is very cool. It's way different than what I was imagining in my mind when I... Uh, I love that alert.
3: little crab-looking uh front view of the
2: car on top. <laughs> it
1: does look like a crab.
2: Uh, okay. The first race with the new cars did not... Go well with Jack Brabham's own cars taking the W pretty easily. Yeah, Brabham had started his own company as well. Luckily, McLaren got their revenge in the next race with Bruce in first and Timmy taking third. Both of Bruce's cars had made it to the podium.
1: Good job on them.
2: But tragedy struck the team at a race in Longford in the state of Victoria. During a practice lap, Timmy Mayers car launched into the air by a hump on the track, sending the car into a tree. Timmy was ejected from the car and broke his neck. Reflecting on the incident in his book, Bruce had this to say, The news that he had died instantly was a terrible shock to all of us. But who's to say that he had not seen more, done more, and learned more in his 26 years than many people do in a lifetime? To do something well is so worthwhile that to die trying to do it better cannot be foolhardy. It would be a waste of life to do nothing with one's ability, for I feel that life is measured in achievement, not in years alone.
1: That's a great what quote. a dude, dude. That is a <laughs> fucking quote.
2: A well-spoken guy. Yeah.
1: That's, and that's how the uh, Bruce McLaren autobiography ends, with that quote. Wow. Wow. Um, I, re- I had to read that, like, three times, so I was just like, holy crap. Yeah, it's, man.
3: like, too smart for me to comprehend as I'm reading it,
1: and then I'm like, whoa,
3: why am I in tears? <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: it's pretty nuts. Like, if I died doing something I loved, I'd want someone to write something like that to kind of eulogize. I'll do it. Yeah. Okay, thanks, James. I'll do it. It's like, <laughs> Nolan. <Wait>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're older than me. <laughs> yeah. Nolan's only, like, what,
2: 27? Twenty-seven next month. And like, or even or though month. it's sad that he died, it's
1: cool because he was trying to make good YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible that he <laughs> he stuck that pencil into that power outlet for the views. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I asked him to do it. <laughs> While Bruce McLaren motor cars continued development on Formula One cars, a new kind, which we will uh, elaborate more on next episode, the Formula One cars, a new kind of racing caught the team's attention. In the mid 1960s, organizers at the Sports Car Club of America, or SCCA, were envisioning a series that could bring Formula One-style excitement over to the states, but with an emphasis on sport cars—or sports cars, rather—not open wheelers like an F1. There would be a there would be big prize money on the line to attract the world's best drivers and teams, and most importantly, the rules would be almost non-existent. <laughs> they <laughs> called it Can-Am. Now. Some of you, like James, uh, might be under the impression that Group B Rally is the most wild racing of all time, and I wouldn't blame you. All-wheel drive consumer cars pushing 1,000 horsepower, flying through Finnish forests, and over crowds of people is pretty wild. But, I promise you, Can-Am was crazier. Unlike Group B, there were no homologation rules. Can-Am cars did not need to be mass-produced. It wasn't uncommon for a team to only have a single car. Can-Am followed the FIA's Group 7 regulations. There was no engine size limits, turbos and superchargers were allowed, and there were no other rules restricting teams.
2: (laughs) That was it. So, like, the only two
1: rules are, (laughs) there are no rules twice. Yes. (laughs) All a Can-Am car needed, yeah. all a Can-Am car needed to be race legal was two seats, bodywork that covered the wheels, and a roll bar. It was... A race engineer's dream come true.
2: Nolan, it was Bruce McLaren's dream come true. BMMR entered the inaugural 1966 Can-Am season with the McLaren M1B. Of all of McLaren's Can-Am cars, this one looks the most like a traditional sports car. It was powered by a 5.4 liter Chevy V8, while the frame was made out of steel and body aluminum. Bruce was able to pilot the M1B to a second-place championship finish that year behind John Surtees. That's
1: Surtees!
2: (laughs) Surtees! The guy Bruce was following during his crash at the ring. The runner-up finish didn't discourage the McLaren team. From here on out would be McLaren domination. Domination!
1: The car for the 1967 season was unlike anything else on the grid. The McLaren M6A resembled more of a wedge than a car, but even more striking than its appearance was the color. To stand out from the rest of the pack, McLaren opted for a bright papaya orange accented with navy blue text reading McLaren cars down the side. While other Can-Am cars used a steel tube frame under their bodywork, the M6A was constructed around an aluminum monocoque chassis. In 1967, yeah. that's some stuff that they were doing with the uh, the Acura NSX, uh, McLaren F1, which we'll talk about next episode. Um, that's like some crazy sh- yeah, for true. the late 60s. The 5.8 liter Chevy engine was mounted in the middle of the car for near perfect weight balance while fuel tanks rode shotgun on either side of the driver.
2: Ah, dude.
3: Let's just make like a pit full of gas tanks and put the driver right in the
1: middle. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe more impressive than the car was how long it took them to build it. From drawing to driving took only 11 weeks.
2: Well, it's it's shaped like a wedge. So the drawing probably didn't
1: take that long. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, McLaren drove over 2,000 miles at the Goodwood circuit to perfect the tuning. Uh, To put it simply, Can Am was unprepared for the McLaren M6A. At the first race of the 1967 season, McLaren driver Denny Hulme took the checkered flag. During the second race at Road America, the M6A broke the track record by 10 seconds.
3: Dang. Damn.
1: The M6A won five out of six races that season, solidifying McLaren's legacy in the process.
2: Now, McLaren kept perfecting the Can-Am cars throughout the 60s.
1: The M6B
2: was a, quote-unquote, production version of the winning M6A. I
1: really want to find one of these things. Yeah,
2: And it was delivered to customers as a rolling chassis that only needed an engine. After that was the more aerodynamic M8A, which allowed Denny Holm to win another championship in 1968. Following that was the M8B, which was very similar to the previous car except for the giant wing that sat feet above the driver's head. This is what I, this is the car I think of when I think of Can. Mm-hmm. This car was undefeated. The M8D was McLaren's 1970 car, and it was by far the most advanced one yet. The primitive wing struts used the previous year were replaced by large vertical fins that rose from the bodywork at both the rear, left and right. Those fins were joined together with a wing that smashed the tires into the pavement. The car looked like something out of a comic book and earned the nickname, the
3: Batmobile. Which one did we see uh, in the Peterson vault tour?
1: I'm pretty sure we saw the M8D, the one that we just described, right? It didn't have the struts. It was more um, low-slung. Do you know what a pirate's favorite
2: Can-Am car is?
1: (laughs) M8R, the (laughs) the matey, (laughs) (sighs) the matey. Like I I encourage call their friends. If you if you guys have time, or if you're not driving, I I encourage you to look up the M8D. This thing is, it's beautiful, man. Like I can't imagine what it was like to drive this thing. M8D or M8E? M8D. On June second. 1970, the McLaren team was testing the new Can-Am car at the Goodwood circuit. They were putting the M8D through its paces. The car's 7.5 liter Chevy power plant made around 680 horsepower. And when combined with the superior aerodynamics, the the M8D was sure to be another winner for McLaren. Bruce hopped in the car to give it a whirl. On the Levant straight, Goodwood's backstretch, the M8D's advanced wing failed. The car lost all downforce on the rear wheels, immediately throwing off Bruce's balance, sending him into a spin. Bruce and the M8D left the track, and they collided with a bunker that was being used as a flag station. Bruce McLaren was dead. He was only 32 years old. The shock was felt around the world. Racing fans across the globe mourned the loss of one of the sport's greatest figures, how could the company that bore his name go on without Bruce McLaren? How would they? We'll find out that next time on Pass Gas.
2: Man, what a, you know, a bummer. Yeah. But, you know, based on things that he's said
1: before, that's the way he would want to go out. Yeah. 1,000%. Uh, There's no way that Bruce would have wanted to just get old. Right. Know? Yeah.
3: In this documentary, He kind of has this, like, maturity that's, like, you know, he didn't expect him to get old and feels like he – like, every race he's, like, kind of bracing for this kind of moment.
1: Yeah. But also all right with it, you know? Yeah, in a way, like, that's what made him good. Yeah. He was chasing it almost, you know? Like, he was like, and then I'll die. In a way, yeah. Because, like, he he had been – I mean, he got – you know, in a weird way, he got that stage of like being bedridden as an old person out of the way super early. Yeah. You know, he knew what that was like. And he, you know, I don't blame him for not wanting he's to. He's like go
3: living back on borrowed time.
1: In a yeah, I guess in a way. Yeah, he I mean he didn't like have terminal illness or anything, but Yeah. He just knew what that those ending stages of life yeah. was like. He had already done it and he didn't want to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Wow, he's younger than me. Isn't that that's Yeah, crazy. he's younger than yeah. Joe, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, thank you for yeah.
2: listening to Pass Gas and uh, supporting us here at Donut. If you don't already know, uh, we also have a YouTube channel. We make a lot of videos. Uh, in the next couple months, we're shooting to have one video every day forever.
1: Oh boy! Uh, yeah, so we're
2: uh, right in the middle of that. Um, make sure you follow Donut media on all social media at donut media uh to get some behind the scenes looks and some sneak peeks at all the stuff we're working on follow me across social media at james pumphrey follow nolan at nolan j sykes follow joe at dark underscore webinar gotta change that name yeah
1: um unless you like it yeah uh yeah man
2: i love you tell tell your friends that you love
1: them yeah yeah
3: i want to make a correction uh from last week okay uh, i said that catholics drink powers that was 2 weeks ago 2 weeks ago yeah uh, that's not true it's uh protestants drink bushmills catholics drink jameson all right
1: so don't bomb our office ira all, all
0: right.
3: right maybe
1: <laughs> don't say that <laughs>